Good morning. Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. If you welcome to Conroe Bible Church, if you are one of our guests, we want you to know that you're most welcome. We're glad that you're with us. I have uh, just a couple of quick announcements to pass your way. The first one is, and you may already know this, is uh, our friends from Under Over are with us, and they are stationed in the library with Christmas decorations. So before you leave campus today, please go by there and check out the stuff that they have worked on um, and brought to us. Um, and uh, the second one, second thing is, or two and three, is this coming Saturday on the 13th? I think it's the 13th is a uh, men's breakfast Saturday morning and then that evening um, women's dinner talks I think is at uh, the pizza shack in Willis so if you're a guy um, get up early and come to breakfast and if you're a girl um, sleep in and then go eat pizza later on that afternoon and then in three weeks um, please make plans for to be here in three weeks on the 21st um, Bob Middleson is that how you say his name Mendelson. Say it louder. So you guys don't need me to tell you. He's going to be here. Bob's going to be here. So you guys should be here as well. Um, uh, friend of ours, friend of the churches from uh, the Jews to Jesus ministry. Um, that's all I have. Um, I would like to take a quick poll. Um, how many people were here an hour early today? Yeah, there's a couple of honest people. Most of you guys are lying. Let's stand together. Oh, 
praise you because of the life that you have given to us. Father, we ask this morning that you would draw us close, that you would teach us, that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If one, uh, if any of you, our kids, 
if any of you are our kids who are K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you are a guest and have a kiddo in that age range, you can go with them to get them checked in and then come back and join us. Misconceptions about death can intensify the grieving process for those that remain after a loved one passes away. There can be great confusion about the afterlife, which then brings greater complication to the grieving process. Some people uh, wonder what's actually out there. Some people are curious about heaven and hell. Even among believers uh, who know that uh, our future is in eternity with Jesus Christ, there are questions about this whole body and soul thing. And uh, are we just going to be disembodied spirits wandering the universe forever? Or are we going to be physical uh, bodies? Or are we going to have a share in the kingdom? Are we going to be with Jesus all the time, forever? All these questions come and go through the minds of people who have lost loved ones and are grieving in the process. And when we are unclear uh, about the afterlife, then it makes the grieving process a little bit hard, harder. Misconceptions about the afterlife are what the Thessalonians were dealing with. And that is a, a question that Paul addressed in 1 Thessalonians 4. They had lots of questions, and so he feels like the need is there to address it. He's probably heard from Timothy in Timothy's report, and so he's going to start this new paragraph in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 13 to 18, and he's going to say, now as to this. And so he's going to start a new subject. And this little paragraph is going to deal with grieving with hope. That's the goal here. And, and so as we look at the theme for today, I would say this, that practically speaking, when the gospel takes root, sorrow turns to joy. When we experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ and we begin to understand who he is and what our future is, then sorrow turns to joy. Grief is still there, but there is now grief with hope, which will come into play in this passage, as you'll quickly see. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, if you will. And we're going to see a couple of different things. We're going to hear the hope that God offers in grief. We're going to hear what God has planned for those who have already gone on, have died from earth. And we're going to hear about those who are still living. And it all has to do with the return of Jesus Christ, what we call the rapture. And we'll see that in verse 17 clearly. But let's start with verse 13. God offers hope to a grieving world. God offers hope to a grieving world. 
one of the things he's going to do is point us to Jesus because he doesn't want us unclear about the future and he doesn't want us grieving hopelessly. Life in a, in a fallen world is hard enough. It is difficult. And then if you begin to wonder, as sometimes we do in grief, is this life just meaningless and pointless? What is really going on here? Then things get harder. And we know that it's tough in a fallen world. Even the world thinks it's tough. Paul says in, in Romans 8 that even creation groans and looks forward to the day of redemption. So we have companionship there with creation. Dealing with loss leads to grief, which is hard. And what we want to remember is that when the gospel takes root, when we are focused on the person of Jesus Christ, that sorrow begins to turn to joy. Paul offers hope the hope of God to those who are grieving the loss of friends. He's been gone a few months from Thessalonica. Remember, he was forced out, and then he was forced out of the next town and persecuted heavily. He's now in Corinth. Timothy has gone back to Thessalonica. He's come back to visit Paul. And evidently, in that time frame, just a few months, people have died in Thessalonica. Some of those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ have now gone on. They have died, and so it has raised lots of questions for the people that were there. And they are confused in their grief. Why would that be? Well, certainly part of it is the culture in which they were raised, in which they grew up, in which they were immersed until they came to Christ just a few months ago. And that culture, the end game for death was annihilation. There was nothing else going on after death. In fact, one of the, the, the writers of the day, Theocritus, said this, There is hope for those that are alive, but those who have died are without hope. The pagan world stood in grim despair. The typical tombstone of the day had words like this, I was not, I became. I am not, I care not. That was their way of trying to deal with life that's confusing and despairing and pointless and meaningless and has no hope for the future. They are hopeless. Now, I like the uh, picture of this open door as a, a picture of hope for me. A picture of sorrow turning to joy, because when I look at that, I think of the darkness that, uh, that grief brings to our lives when we lose something or someone that is important to us, someone that we've been attached to, someone that we love. And, and so we cycle through these stages of grief, of denial and anger and bargaining or anger outward. Or, or, and depression or sadness and then finally acceptance and, and it's random and it's unique to every individual and the length of time is different for each individual and it's different for each type of loss it's very unique to who, uh, who we are but in the midst of it as we're focused on the loss it can feel very dark it can feel like it's closing in and so i like this picture because it reminds me <laughs> that there is hope in jesus christ that we can walk through that door and that there is a way forward out of the darkness 
and that hope is offered by God so that we don't have to grieve hopelessly, but we can grieve with great hope. Jesus is central to all that's going on. Well, the Thessalonians grieved because of their culture. They also grieved because they were unsure of the rapture and the resurrection. They rightly understood that Christ would return for his church, for the body of Christ. But then people began to die, and, and they had no answers for that. What does that mean? These are followers of Jesus Christ. Are they going to be included in the rapture? The grief was compounded by unsettling questions. What's going to happen to our loved ones who have died? Will they have a share in the kingdom? Will we be reunited? Will that be delayed because they've died and Christ hasn't returned yet? All of these questions going on to just intensify the normal grief process that takes place when someone dies. So in light of these questions, God, uh, Paul educates them with God's truth. And, and we see that in verse 13. He wanted them to be fully informed and comforted as to God's plan. And so he states this, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So he's, he's writing to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven, they've received the gift of eternal life, and now they're grieving those who have died. And he says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. When you look around the culture, when you look at your friends, when you think of your past, there is no hope. And Paul says, I want you to have hope. That's what God wants. He's focused on the death of believers here. He uses the word asleep, which certainly in Scripture does uh, apply and is used of those times when someone lays their head down on the pillow and, and gets some restorative rest. But it's also used in Scripture in the New Testament of those who have died. And what it is referring to is that their bodies go into the ground or they're burned or they decay. They are asleep, metaphorically. And their soul or their spirit goes to be with Jesus Christ. So when he talks about those who are asleep, it's just a, a euphemism for those who have died. And their bodies are now in the ground. Paul is saying they're there until such a time as their bodies, they'll be reunited with their bodies by Christ and given a glorified body. Here's, here's the whole point of this entire paragraph, and it's there in the phrase, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Please note that Paul is not saying that you are not to grieve. Paul is not saying that at all. He's saying, I don't want you to grieve hopelessly. Grief is just that normal response to losing someone or something that is important to you, especially someone that you've become attached to through love. We must not grieve hopelessly. We must mourn with hope. Scripture tells us that to be absent from the body, not in this passage, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. So at the moment of death, the person who is a follower of Jesus Christ enters into the presence of Jesus Christ. That's where their soul goes. Their body goes to sleep, goes to the ground, goes to wherever people put that until Christ will reunite it. 
Philippians 1.23, Paul also says, he talks about departing to be with Christ. And so we know from Scripture that it is true that upon death we go to be with Jesus Christ. That alone gives us hope. That we don't have to grieve hopelessly wondering what happened to this person if they know Jesus Christ. And if they know Jesus Christ and they're in his presence, they know a far greater joy. But we are left behind to grieve their loss. Now, when you think about grief, you don't have to have been a believer very long to recognize that faith does not lessen the feelings of grief. You can be a strong believer, and you're still going to grieve. You're still going to go through this process of adjusting to the reality that you have lost someone or something. Occasionally, people think they lack faith because of their grief, and nothing could be more untrue. That's just a lie of Satan. You can be strong of faith, you can be weak of faith, but you lose someone, you are going to grieve that. And Paul wants us to grieve with hope. Thankfully, when it comes to grief and emotions, Scripture validates our grief by acknowledging our emotions. Uh, I like what Paul put in Philippians chapter 2. He, he talked about the near-death experience of his friend Epaphroditus. And this is what he said, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. The thought of losing his friend, Epaphroditus, broke Paul's heart. He knew that Epaphroditus had a future, but even the thought, the prospect of losing him, brought true sorrow to Paul. Scripture validates our emotions when it comes to grief. Paul is not our only biblical example. Grief is a reality with which our Savior is personally acquainted. Perhaps the best example is the example of Lazarus, whom Jesus knew as a good friend who had died. And Jesus knew that he was going to raise him, but he was still sincerely sad. And part of the way that he identifies with us and identified with us when he was on this earth was to shed tears. Jesus wept when he stood at the grave of Lazarus until the day of redemption. We look to Jesus. We long for that day when such pain of grief will have ceased. And currently, Jesus is the one who enables us to allow grief and hope to coexist. We know him in Isaiah 53 as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so we see him as a model of one who grieves with us, one who allows us to grieve, one who shows us how to grieve. But we also know him in that same passage in John 11 with Lazarus as the resurrection and the life. And so we look to him for eternity as well. We can look to Jesus in the midst of great grief, both as our model and our future, our future hope, because it is located in the person of Jesus Christ. We look forward to him for our eternity. Hope begins to reign in our hearts 
sorrow begins to turn to joy. One day our grief will be redeemed. God is the one who provides hope for this hopeless world. And so we can turn to him. We don't have to turn to speculations and thoughts and imaginations and discussions of philosophers or scientists or anybody else. We can turn to God himself. And our role as followers of Jesus Christ, as we walk this faith journey together with others, is to minister to them with empathy. It's to be present. We don't have to fix anybody. You can't speed up or slow down the process of grief. You can't change it when it cycles back and forth. But you can be present. You can listen to people. You can allow them to express their emotions through their lips and just be there for them. We want to be people of empathy. We want to be people of love. We want to be people who pray for them and bring the presence of Jesus Christ to them. We want to make sure that they don't become clinically depressed by locking down in one of those stages. We can do that in the strength of Jesus Christ, bringing his love and compassion to others. God offers hope to a grieving world. Loss is all around us, and it is natural to grieve it. But we grieve with hope. Jesus offers that grief, offers that hope in grief. And in fact, our future hope is based on the past certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's go there in verses 14 to 16. Paul makes it clear that there will be a resurrection of God's people. God guarantees the future resurrection of believers. And we get that in 15. Paul is going to describe the, the coming of Christ for both the living and the dead in that incredible event of the rapture. The reassuring affirmation here is that the dead in Christ will rise first. They will not be left behind. God will resurrect them and they will share in the kingdom. This is what Paul wrote in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Our future hope is guaranteed by the certainty of the past. Paul starts out here with a, a grammatical construction that basically where he says for if he's basically saying since in the way the Greek grammar is constructed since we believe that Jesus died and rose again these are basically the two minimums of the gospel this is what he gives in 1 Corinthians 15 here's the gospel that Jesus died for your sins was buried and rose again he died and was buried and he rose again every believer that has come to faith has come to faith believing in christ that he did what he said he did that he died for our sins and that he rose again victorious over sin and death we are certain of this historical event this biblical event paul is saying you can be just as certain of the future resurrection because it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can draw comfort from the resurrection of Christ. His resurrection is a guarantee to all who believe in him. His destiny is our destiny. Our hope of resurrection is based on his resurrection. It's directly linked to what God has done in Jesus. 
God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will do that for all who place their faith in Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are among the best attested facts in history. It seems like every century there are those who go out to disprove the resurrection. And so they study it. And so in the last couple of centuries, people like Frank Morrison and Josh McDowell and, and Lee Strobel and others go out to disprove the resurrection because if they can disprove that, they can prove that Jesus is not alive and Christianity is just falsehood. And what happens? They get into the evidence and they realize that it is complete and they end up giving their lives to Jesus Christ. The facts of the resurrection are overwhelming by the external evidence. And in the first century, especially, there was plenty of evidence. Gary Habermas says this, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. We see that in the book of Acts, right? He continues, the earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced that they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, this was their centermost conviction. They would have made absolutely sure that it was true. Think back to the book of Acts when the apostles were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just a few months after Christ had died and risen again and ascended to heaven. Plenty of closeness to the event for people to investigate. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And even Paul, five to eight years later, he's preaching the resurrection. And people could have claimed that it was not such by investigating it then, if they could come up with proof. But they didn't. And so even today, when people go back and they use textual criticism and they look at the, the, the uh, manuscripts and, and they look at the historical facts, they recognize that there is tremendous evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since Christians know these events take place, then we can be equally certain that the souls of believers who have died will return with Christ when he comes for his living saints. The prophecies of the rapture are to be as certain to be fulfilled as the prophecies of Jesus' death and resurrection. The return of Christ in the, in the rapture involves the living and the dead. And there are various elements here that we find in, in verses 14 to 16. God promises Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. To have fallen asleep in Jesus means that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've received him as your savior and you've received the free gift of eternal life. And so when you die, you are immediately ushered into his presence. Paul is saying that when Christ returns, he will bring those who are with Jesus, those who have died and gone before to be with him, he will bring them back with him. Paul then clarifies the order of the return of Christ. The dead in Christ are going to precede the living. And this is what he says in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the departed, those who have died, will rise first. 
the dead in Christ take precedent. And certainly that brings comfort to these who have questions about the, the, the timing of the rapture, the timing of God's return, the timing of the death of those that have gone on. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, don't listen to the human speculation going on. Don't be confused. This is directly from our Lord, the word of the Lord. Those believers who have died will not be left out of God's plan. Not only will the souls of the dead in Christ return with Jesus, but their bodies will also be resurrected at his coming. The bodies of dead Christians will be resurrected and given a glorified body. We don't find that in 1 Thessalonians 4. We find that over in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. We're told there that the body is sown perishable and it is raised imperishable. In other words, that is our glorified body, the body that we will have that will be like Jesus Christ, for we shall see him as he is face to face. Body and soul will be joined in a glorified body. Clearly, Paul believed that he and the Thessalonian believers would be alive when Christ returned, he believed in the imminency of Jesus' return, and certainly that brought them comfort, believing that Christ would return, and it certainly changed their perspective on how they live their life following Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, we become aware of the events to take place at the rapture, and this is what Paul wrote. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. He will descend from heaven to earth, leaving that position, and come to us. Paul emphasized that it would be the same Jesus who ascended through the clouds in Acts 1. There are three phenomena here that we are told take place at the rapture. There is a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And those are not explained for us. As I read that and I read scripture, I think of the shout that Jesus gave at the tomb of Lazarus when he called to him and said, Lazarus, come forth. And there's nothing biblical about that. It just makes me think that perhaps that is the shout. Jesus is here and the bodies are to be raised and to be given glorified bodies and reunited with the soul. The voice of the archangel makes me think of Michael, prominently uh, discussed in Scripture as an archangel of uh, God. And he, he might share in the victory shout. He might share in the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God was used to call the people of Israel to assemble. And so when you think of the rapture, you think about Jesus calling his body, the church, to assemble, to meet him in the air, just like we would meet royalty. These three announcements of, of Christ's return are likely simultaneous and they herald the return of Christ with, with dramatically and with great fanfare. Then the dead in Christ will rise first. The phrase in Christ is used throughout scripture to refer to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So we're talking about New Testament believers, or as I've said, those that are members of the body of Christ at large. Those who have placed their faith in Christ are in Christ. The Old Testament saints were given indication elsewhere will be raised at the end of the tribulation. 
but New Testament saints will be raised here at the start, both those who have died and those who are living. As with the first century, many Christians have questions today. How can God raise the dead? What about people that are buried hundreds of years ago and have decayed? What about people that are burned? What about people that were lost and, and never heard about? Questions like these can frustrate the faith of some people. I think that's why Paul stressed that this truth came from the Lord himself, that Jesus' return is, is certain as the fulfillment of the prophecies about his death and resurrection. He will return. That those who have died and gone to be with him will return with him, and they will be given a glorified body. Their bodies will be raised. And then those who are living, as we'll see in the next verse, are going to be gathered to meet him in the air, and we will be given a glorified body. We will join Jesus in the air, and this glorified body will be a body that's completely whole and sinless. Can you imagine that kind of healing going on in your body? Can you imagine the sheer joy and the sheer freedom that we will have in heaven when we are united with Christ in our glorified bodies. We know that we'll be recognizable because Jesus, following his resurrection and his glorified body, was recognizable to the disciples. We look forward to that day. In verse 16, Paul revealed what would happen in the future for the dead saints at Christ's return. And in the next verse, he deals with those who are living. This would apply to us today. Verse 17, God offers hope to the living saints through the rapture. The Lord has brought comfort to the living saints by letting them know what has happened to those who have gone on, who have died. Now the Lord brings comfort to those who are living. And he informs them that after the dead in Christ are raised, then we will follow. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. After the bodies of the dead Christians have been raised, those who are still alive and left behind momentarily will be raised and join them in the cloud, caught up with them in the clouds. Paul uses the term we, which uh, reveals again that he expected, expected to be alive at the time of Christ's return. And only a moment of time will separate the resurrection of those who have gone on in Christ and those who are alive in receiving our glorified bodies. This is how Paul put it over in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, we won't all have died and gone to be with Christ, but we will all be translated into a glorified body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Those who have died... Their bodies will be raised and given imperishable bodies. We who are alive will be given imperishable bodies. We will be changed uh, 
into a glorified body. Some will die, and those are the ones who sleep. They have fallen asleep in Jesus. They will be raised. Directly after that, those who are alive are changed. They will be translated from perishable to imperishable. Paul is letting us know that we're going to be caught up together. The dead in Christ will precede us in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment of time. The words here, caught up, are the Greek word harpoxo. The Latin word is the word rapturo. And that's where we get the term rapture. This idea that we will be caught up or snatched away. Taken by Jesus Christ. Jesus first mentioned it in John 14, 3, when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and return and bring you to myself. This passage refers to the rapture. I think it is separate from the second coming so that in the end times events, as I understand it in my study of scripture, there will be a rapture with no warning. Jesus return and he will catch up his body, his church. And then after that, we'll take a, a seven year period of tribulation. And then after that, the second coming of Christ where he will return and then he will set up his thousand year kingdom. If you look at the descriptions here and throughout the New Testament, there are uh, solid differences between uh, this designed for believers and the second coming designed for unbelievers that we see in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. So that is, in essence, the theology that uh, we preach here. But we can't be completely certain because we don't know what the future holds as Christ uh, will return. We know that. Um, but I, uh, in my study of it, I am uh, convinced that that is what the Lord has for us. And it brings me great hope and great joy to realize that he can come at any moment. It also alters our perspective on how we live life in this world when we think about his imminent uh, return. There will be a resurrection of the dead and a reunion of God's people. That is tremendous hope. And that is one of the things that we hold on to uh, at any funeral service or memorial service or celebration of life. We look forward to the day when we'll be reunited. We'll be united with Christ. And that is the best thing. We'll be in heaven. We'll enjoy the new heaven and the new earth with great adventure. And we'll work and play and, and worship and invent and travel and have all kinds of great times. But the best part is it will be in the presence of Jesus Christ, face to face for all eternity and have complete freedom to know him, to gain full understanding of him and his grace and to enjoy him and his presence forever. That's the exciting thing about being with Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, so we shall always be with the Lord. When the gospel takes root in our lives, sorrow turns to joy. And Paul closes this section in verse 18 with encouragement. He says in verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another 
with these words. Comfort and encouragement are a natural outcome of these words. They give us hope when the darkness of grief is closing in. They give us hope because they turn our focus onto the person of Jesus Christ and his truth. And we may still have questions and may not fully understand all that's going to take place, but we get enough of the future to realize that we will be with Jesus Christ forever. And we will be reunited with those who have given their lives, have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Grief is real. And it's random, and it's unique to each person, as I said. And there is no reason that we have to live with grim despair, that we can turn our focus to Jesus Christ, and we can go through the grief process. It's not uh, uh, an easy thing at times, but I see it as a gift of God's grace that allows us to be all in with people to be fully known and to be fully loved, those deep yearnings that are within each of us and to be able to become attached to people that we love and to express that and then to be able to adjust to the reality of their loss when it happens, whether it's just moving away or uh, the loss of someone going to be with Jesus. We can grieve. We can grieve with hope because of the person of Jesus Christ. When the gospel takes root in our lives, sorrow turns to joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for clarifying things that we need to know about the future, things that bring comfort and encouragement. Thank you for giving them to us to encourage one another. Thank you most of all that this paragraph continues to reveal your sovereign grace, your sovereign plan in, in redeeming and ultimately bringing us to be with you. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the joy that we will have eternity with you. We thank you that you're fully in control. We thank you that you're fully aware of our needs going through grief and experiencing loss. We thank you that you experienced that here on earth and show us how to do it. We thank you that we can look forward to you as the resurrection of life and the life that we will spend all eternity with you. And so we ask for grace that you would turn our sorrows to joy and that you would give us continued hope, a happy certainty in the midst of grief. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.
Thank you guys for being with us this week. Have a good one.